Uh, let's open our Bibles to uh, Matthew uh, at long last. Uh, we'll be returning to the Gospel of Matthew, and specifically Matthew chapter 5. And what I want to do this morning as we begin is uh, read to you uh, from sort of uh, the, the, op- the overarching uh, statement about the Sermon on the Mount, namely that our righteousness the believer's righteousness, and I'm not talking about the righteousness Jesus gives us, but actually the righteousness we're called to live in must be greater than the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day. We must actually walk in the love that God teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount. We do it as forgiven sinners, as justified sinners, but Jesus is making it clear here that he has come to bring the fullness of God's word and then to lead us in a way of love. And then what I'll do after I've read that, that's uh, Matthew 5, 17 to 20, is we'll dip down to the third of Jesus' statements that he's going through, Matthew 5, uh, 7, 31, where he speaks about divorce. So let me read to you these, these words of God. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You skip down to chapter five, verse 31. We read, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is God's word. Praise be to God. You can respond with praise be to God. This is God's word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would please come in our weakness to help us understand your word as it relates to all the mess of our life. All the different tangled situations we live in need your clear word. We pray you'd bring it to us this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. If you were to say, uh, what do 2023 and AD 30, around the years of Jesus' ministry, What do they have in common? Pick a lot of different things. One thing that I think is not as expected that 2023 and 8030 have in common is that people then and now love to quote the Bible. They love to quote a little bit of Bible. In our culture, politicians love it, pop songs love it, the people you live next to love to quote the Bible. The Bible is beloved 
kinda. Uh, President Trump loved the Bible. He loved to quote it. He quoted from 2 Corinthians once. He actually, I thought this was rather humble of him. He said his second favorite book was his own Art of the Deal. But number one, he said, he loved it muchly, was the Bible. He didn't know much of it. He was asked once if he had asked God to forgive him his sins, and he said there really isn't a lot to ask. But yeah, you see that idea of a little bit of love and a little bit of the Bible. Pete Buttigieg, our current transportation secretary, openly embraces a gay lifestyle that's contrary to the Bible, but on the campaign trail, he loves to quote the Bible. His favorite verse to quote on the campaign trail is, he who oppresses the poor shows contempt for his neighbor. It's actually a fun Google search. You can just Google Republicans and Democrats quote the Bible. Lots, everybody, always quoting the Bible. Pop songs do it too. In the 1960s, the birds were quoting the Bible. In the 1990s, Coolio was quoting the Bible. Today, Sam Smith quotes the Bible. They all weave a little Bible into their lyrics. Sometimes there's just enough Bible in a song that I think some Christians actually think it's a hymn. Many of you are familiar with Leonard Cohen's uh, famous song. It's been covered by many, Hallelujah. Sounds like a hymn, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. In fact, some people think it's so much like him, you can actually find online many worship pastors that have led their congregations to sing Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. Now, some of you are giggling because a 30-second reading of the lyrics, it's pretty clear that the song is about a man who's lost a scandalous love, doubts God, and is actually using Hallelujah as an expression for the climax of his sexual desires. Kind of a weird worship choice, Sunday morning. But my point remains, we love a little Bible. We love a little Bible. It's not just politicians, it's a pop song. It's also just the people you meet as you're walking down the street, uh, to use a little Sesame Street. If you've shared the gospel at all in the last 10 years and talked at all about the judgment of God, you've heard, judge not, lest you be judged. And so often the answer to the Bible is a little bit of Bible. In AD 30 and 2023, people just love to quote the Bible. And it struck me afresh this week that in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus is dealing with. He's dealing with a people who love to quote the Bible. Six times-ish in the Sermon on the Mount, we have Jesus saying something like, you have heard it said, you have heard it said, you have heard it said. And what people had heard said was the Bible. They had heard the Bible quoted. It was in the common moral fabric, in the common vision. The, uh, the moral vision of the day was suffused with Scripture. But what people loved then as now was they loved just enough Bible to get away with murder. So you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. Everyone patted themselves on the back. I've never stabbed anyone, strangled anyone, killed anyone. But Jesus then pressed that a little deeper and said, if you hate, you've murdered. 
And so, okay, you like to quote a little Bible, it makes you feel good, but if you actually get the full import, the full impact of the Bible, it's not you using the Bible anymore, it's now the Bible speaking to your heart. Same thing, last time we were in, in Matthew, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. People love that, that's good. We're a moral culture, thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus kind of takes that one, stops the whole thing we get ourselves involved with where we sort of use the Bible to make ourselves feel better. And he says, it's not just if you actually sleep with another woman, if you lust, you've as good as committed adultery. I think it's fair to say that Jesus hates the human tendency to take a little bit of Bible and to use it as a veneer to cover the sin in our lives. And his burden is to make a people in the world who don't just use a little bit of Bible. His burden for you and me is that we would be a people who've been pierced by the illuminating truth of the Bible, exposed, convicted, even condemned, and then we come to see him as our savior. And the thought of just quoting a little bit of Bible becomes scandalous to us. And we wanna make sure we're obeying the whole thing from the heart. That's what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching his followers not just to use a little bit of Bible. You've heard it said, you've heard it said, yeah, I've heard it said, we've all heard it said. Not just to use a little bit of Bible, but to come at the Bible and to understand its fullness as he brings it to us. As actually a book that teaches us not only forgiveness, but once forgiven, how to follow an actual law of love. Commands that don't let you get away with murder, but commands that actually destroy the hate and the lust and the divorcing spirit in your heart. That's what's going on when we get to uh, Jesus dealing with divorce. He's dealing with a culture that loved a little bit of Bible. And it was a little bit of Bible that lets you get divorced for basically whatever reason you wanted. And he's pressing his word to its fullness to create a people who rarely get divorced, and as a result, wind up growing in relationships of love that happen only when you refuse to leave each other till death do you part. And so I just wanna make two points this morning, and then near the end, I'll try to break it down into various little applications, because when you speak about divorce and remarriage, there's always lots of tender places we need to make sure we're answering questions. But I just wanna make two points this morning, and the first is this, is that a little of God's word actually promotes great sin and wickedness. A little bit of Bible is actually devilish. A little bit of Bible actually promotes rather than restrains wickedness. So, like so many in our day, the scribes and Pharisees, the leaders, and the people they led in Israel liked their Bible in easily manipulated, bite-sized chunks. Their favorite verse when it came to divorce was Deuteronomy 24.1, which we find paraphrased here in Matthew 5.31. 
Jesus reminds them of what was already their favorite verse on divorce. And he says, it was also said, this is in the Carmen Parlance, this is out there in the culture, you know everyone talks about this, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, I wanna tell you two things about this verse. Deuteronomy 24.1, paraphrase Matthew 5.31. Whoever divorces his wife, let her give him a certificate of divorce. I wanna tell you two things about this verse. First, I wanna tell you what we know about what this verse meant in its original context, back in Deuteronomy 24. And then second, I wanna tell you how the Jews were using it in Jesus' day. So here's the deal. Deuteronomy 24 is part of the law of God. It's part of the law of God that was given to the people of Israel. It's part of the law of Moses that was given to the nation of Israel. And the first thing you need to understand about the law of God is it was never meant to make heaven on earth. Sometimes people will go back to the Old Testament and they'll see some law they can't understand and they go, how can this be from the God of heaven? And you gotta recognize right away what Jesus tells you in Matthew 19 that the law was given due to the hardness of heart that people had. So the law isn't going, we're gonna bring in heaven on earth with this law. This, this law was actually given to keep, from, keep the earth from being a living hell. It was much more a restraining factor than it was a perfecting word. And in Deuteronomy 24, what's happening in the law is that God is laying down a law that will keep women from being passed back and forth between men like some sort of object of their desire, like a sexual commodity, like a hot potato. Deuteronomy 24, one through five, here's the whole thing. Let me read you the whole passage in its context. And I'll just say to you, in the ancient Near East, where this law was given, this is a progressive law. This is law that's moving into a world where women have no protections, no rights, and saying, no, 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 we gotta restrain the evil that can be done to women when it comes to divorce. So it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the later man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, the first guy who divorced her, who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife and she, after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. There's lots of debate about lots of parts of this um, passage. If you want to hear them dealt with more extensively, I dealt with this when we preached through Deuteronomy a number of years, and those things are online. But just a few basic things. What, what it seems to be the essential burden is that men would not toy with women, so divorce had to be done with a certificate, there had to be something official, and you couldn't just dismiss her and then bring her back later 
which essentially would just be a way of playing a legalized sort of adultery hot potato game. She's mine, then she's yours, you divorce her, now she's mine again. And so the Old Testament is making sure that degraded situation does not transpire. And I want to be very clear, you'll notice here, divorce is not commanded in this passage. It's, it's basically taken as a given. You hard-hearted people do this, here's how to regulate it. Here's how to keep it from going utterly out of control. And if we get to Matthew 19 sometime in this lifetime, what we'll see is Jesus discussing this verse and the Pharisees and the scribes saying, didn't Moses command divorce? And, and, and Jesus said, no, 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 he didn't command divorce. You're reading the verse all wrong. He allowed it because your heart's so hard. And then he regulated and capped it off so it wouldn't descend into, well, to be honest, exactly what we have today, which is men and women being passed back and forth between one another as they suit one another's fancy or don't. So that's the way the law was given in Deuteronomy 24. Now here's what the Jews did with it. What the Jews did with it is of course they did what people still do on Twitter or in memes, is that they took half a verse separated from its context and made it really important. There is nothing new under the sun. Believe it or not, Twitter is not the root cause of any evil on the planet. What the Jews did is they took Deuteronomy 24.1 and they told it to each other. You've heard it said, this is the way it is. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And you can maybe even notice if you just compare Deuteronomy 24, the subtle shift in language over the course of three verses, I'll point them all out, from this is allowed to this is commanded. So Deuteronomy 24, when a man takes a wife and marries her. So just when this happens, let him give her a certificate. So it's, just, it's, it's explaining a detail of the way life is and then regulating it. Then Jesus kind of notices that in his day it's, it's been strengthened. You have, heard it said, you, sh- you have heard it said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Like, like this is the way it's gotta go down. And when we get to Matthew 19, I'm not gonna have you turn there, but when you get to Matthew 19, the religious leaders actually say, Moses commanded us to divorce. Okay. So already the Jews are kind of ramping up God's word, adding to God's word. And then here's, here's the major thing they added. They made the major point of debate about divorce, this word we read, some indecency. When a man divorces his wife for some indecency, and they had debates about what this meant. What was this some indecency that allowed for divorce? And guess what? Back in the days of Moses, there were conservatives and liberals, and they didn't agree. It's a miracle, it's amazing. How does this happen? And the conservatives followed a rabbi by the name of Shammai, And Shammai said, this term, some indecency, it it, it is some extreme, probably sexual aberration. And when there's some extreme sexual aberration, then you can have a divorce. Now, why don't you just say adultery, Ryan? Here's why. 
because we know that the sum indecent wasn't, dumb indecency wasn't adultery because adultery was not a divorce issue in the Old Testament, it was a death penalty issue in the Old Testament. So when we talk about the Old Testament permitting divorce and it says when a man divorces his wife for some indecency, the some indecency can't be full-blown adultery because that had its own laws. Rather, the some indecency could have been an extreme immodesty, uh, something that was leading to adultery, something along those lines. Now, there was another school of thought, not just the school of Shammai, but the school of Hillel. It was another extreme, another, another um, school of thought. And I want to be careful, because when you say there was two schools of thought, you might sort of think, okay, conservative and liberal, and they're 50-50, and the independents decide who wins. No, no, no. The liberals won the day. The liberals were way more popular, okay? The, the view I just shared where some indecency is some sexual aberration, and that's the only thing that'll let you get divorced, was the minority position. The, the majority position was you can divorce your wife for anything you want to divorce her for. Some indecency can be anything. And I'm actually going to read you probably like 20 or 30 of the things that they allowed divorce for because it illustrates the wickedness of the human heart and how eager we are to get away from anyone who drags us down. And the insecurity that was found in marriage from the time of Moses on. So this liberal school basically said, you, some indecency means for any cause. So men divorce their wives for barrenness. That's a heartbreak. Deafness, muteness, epilepsy, tetanus, warts, leprosy, if she did not grind flour, bake bread, wash clothes, cook food, nurse the children, make the beds, weave the wool. There's some of you ladies at home with a pile of laundry that would have generated a divorce suit in the ancient Near East. Listen to the catch-22 uh, women were put in. Charles Quarles in his excellent book on the Sermon on the Mount says this, he says, if she brought one servant into the marriage, she did not have to grind, bake, or wash. If she brought a second servant into the marriage, she did not have to nurse the children or cook. If she brought a third servant into the home, she did not have to make up the bed or work in wool. If she brought five servants into the home, she could sit up in a chair all day long and not lift a finger. However, if her husband considered her lazy, sitting in that chair all day, then he again had prerogative to divorce. Those were all legally sanctioned. I'm an obedient believer. I'm obeying God's word. Ways of lawful and even required divorce. They took a little bit of the Bible and they used it to justify catastrophic wickedness. You can only imagine the damage done to women who, there, there was no, you get divorced in the ancient Near East and then you go get your, go to med school and finally do it for yourself. There was no Mary Tyler Moore kind of independent womanhood in the ancient Near East. You, you, you get divorced and then you're either destitute or remarried. Those are your economic options. And you've got a culture full of men 
finding every justification from the Bible. Not from the secular world. No, 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 no. From the Bible for leaving their wives. And you can only imagine the effect that had on women and children. And of course, things are so similar today. Our culture could give them a run for their money. We divorce because we've fallen out of love, because we got older and found a trophy wife, or we found a woman finds a man who makes enough money to fund the lifestyle she's always wanted. We've changed, we're not who we used to be. I know there are many teenagers in this room who are watching Chris from Mr. Beast leave his wife so he can pursue a new identity as a woman. His personal desires for perversion are trumping his covenant promises to one woman. People want to get in and out of marriage as it suits them. And the Jews in Jesus' day, they used a little Bible to justify great wickedness. I'll just say, before I move on to my second point, what a motive to give ourselves to reading Christian books, to attending whatever Sunday schools we can, to sitting under God's word regularly, to making sure that we understand the whole scripture because a little bit of the Bible is not always a good thing. A little bit of the Bible can actually be a, a it can be a promoting cause. It can be a, a justifying cause for some of the greatest wickedness the world has ever seen. And we want to be careful of being any kind of little bit of the Bible Christians. There are men who only got the authority piece of the Bible, and not any of the love or nourish or cherish part of the Bible. And all of us have to ask, are we bringing in the whole book? And I'll tell you one thing, if you, you want to know, am I generally on the right track when it comes to the Bible? Here's something that will mark you. You will increasingly and continually feel a poverty of spirit you will increasingly and continually grow in a meekness. You will increasingly and continually feel a humility. There will be a growing awareness and satisfaction in your need for Christ. And if those things aren't there, you can be memorized, you can be winning Bible bees all over the world, you are not growing in your knowledge of God or of his word. Second point. The fullness of God's word prevents great sin and weakness. A little bit of Bible promotes great sin and wickedness. The fullness of God's word. And this is what Jesus came to do. He came to, bring the, to fulfill the law, to bring it to its just blazing glory. The fullness of God's word prevents great sin and wickedness. Now, the way most people use the Bible in Jesus' day, like I said, was to rationalize and justify great selfishness. They, they slapped a little Bible on their wicked lives so they could feel obedient while they were being disobedient. And Jesus comes at life completely differently. 
Instead of using a part of God's word, he brings the fullness of God's law of love into the conversation. Remember the text. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Do you notice how different his approach is? The average Jew in Jesus' day says, I've got to get rid of this woman if she's dragging me down. Jesus says, if you get rid of this woman, you're dragging her down. It's not you for me. It's me for you. Jesus says, if you divorce her, you're dragging her down, you are making her commit adultery. Oh, you might give her a certificate. What's she supposed to do? Take that to the bank? What's she going to do with that? What does it mean to cause a woman or a man to become an adulterer? What does that mean? You divorce her for unjust reasons. She becomes an adulterer. And in Mark's gospel, he becomes an adulterer if she divorces him. It goes both ways. I haven't read a better explanation of this than the one given by John Stott. He says, it seems to be assumed that a divorce would lead to the remarriage of the divorced parties. Only this assumption can explain the statement that a man divorcing his wife without cause makes her an adulteress. His action could have the result only if she married again. Since God instituted marriage as an exclusive and permanent union, a union which he makes and man must not break, Jesus draws the inevitable deduction that to divorce one's partner and marry another or to marry a divorced person is to enter a forbidden, adulterous relationship. For the person who may have secured a divorce in the eyes of human law is still in the eyes of God married to his or her first partner. Just because you call it a divorce doesn't make it a divorce. Just because you call it a marriage, here's something for 2023, doesn't make it a marriage. A marriage is what God defines as a marriage. A divorce is what God defines as a divorce. He gets the last word. The scribes and the Pharisees have a view of divorce that uses the Bible to justify all their selfishness. Their passion is to avoid any circumstance that pinch their selfish pleasures. Jesus' view of divorce aims to help couples please God. His passion is to avoid any circumstance that would promote sin. And this is my whole point, the text's whole point. The fullness of God's word prevents great sin. Now there's one more sin uh, this word from Jesus would prevent. First, he restricts divorce so that adultery is not promoted. Second, he opens up the possibility of divorce so that one spouse is not forced to stay in a marriage that sexual immorality has destroyed. He commands in such a way that one spouse is not forced to stay in a marriage that's constantly being jeopardized and actually the foundation is being destroyed by the other spouse's sexual infidelity. That's what this exception clause means. It's often called the exception clause. I tell you, Jesus says this, 
Whoever divorces his wife makes her commit adultery except on the ground of sexual morality. That is, when there is sexual morality, then there is an allowable divorce, and divorce in the ancient Near East always entailed a remarriage if it was an allowable divorce. So when there is sexual immorality, then that actually breaks the marriage covenant to such an extent that divorce is allowable. It's because, as Douglas O'Donnell put it, that sin alone breaks the covenant bond. Sex in marriage is like super glue. It binds a couple together. It makes two one, physically and metaphysically. But if that bond is severed, it is so difficult to re-glue those two pieces. When a spouse unites themselves to another sexually, they detonate a nuclear bomb in the very foundation of their marriage. They blow it up. They don't just merely punch a hole in the wall of marriage with their irritability or smash the windows with their bitterness. They explode the very foundation of the home. And when that foundation is destroyed, Jesus says that it is permissible for the offended party, the wronged spouse, to walk away without sin. What exactly constitutes sexual immorality? The word here translated sexual immorality is actually not the specific word for adultery. It's a broader word. It's the word pornea from which we get pornography. It would be fair to say that the term that Jesus is saying justifies divorce would include incest, bestiality, certainly adultery, I think it would be fair to say that this term would include long-term pornography and particularly debased and defiling pornography as a grounds for a lawful divorce for a Christian. Now, no doubt, many of you are aware that there are some who say, this exception clause does not say what I'm saying. Maybe you're aware that in Mark and Luke, and you know that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you read them real quick and late at night, sorry, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you read them real quick and late at night, you're like, was that the same book? No, they're not the same book, but they're telling the same tale with lots of overlap and also lots of distinctives. And in Mark and Luke, this exception clause doesn't come up. It isn't said. And so some people come at this and they say, well, okay, why is the exception clause in Matthew? and not in Mark and Luke. What's going on? Why'd Matthew include it and not Mark and Luke? What do we think of this? And I dealt with this extensively back in the sermon I preached on Deuteronomy 24, but if I just could deal with it briefly here, I'll say this. The explanation that's given for why Matthew has this exception clause, except for sexual immorality, Mark and Luke don't, is that Matthew's eager to defend Joseph. Joseph was thinking of divorcing Mary for a sexual morality, he thought, during the betrothal period. And I just want to say about this that many good men hold this view, and I think it's extremely bad and extremely pastorally unhelpful and not textually justified at all. And here's why. I don't think that you would come at reading Matthew, just on its own, reading Matthew, and read, except for sexual morality, and ever say, that must be because of Joseph. The only thing that would ever get you there is if you're already trying to find a reason why Mark and Luke don't have it, and Matthew does. But then I'll say one more thing that I think is a little stronger. 
the people who were listening to the Sermon on the Mount. They definitely heard the exception clause. Just because Mark and Luke don't report it doesn't mean it wasn't said. The gospel writers never give you every word Jesus said. But when it is reported, it's because he did say it. So I can't imagine anyone on the mount with Jesus hearing, except for sexual immorality, and, that, and going, that must be because of what happened with Jesus' dad that I never heard about before. And if time permitted, I would get into how sad I think it is to hold a position that puts the innocent party in a sexual immorality in the most difficult place. A man cheats on her, he's free because of his sin. It's a kind of, it's a terrible freedom. She, however, or him, if we reverse the situation, must never ever remarry ever again for their entire life. That seems foreign to the way the New Testament and the Old Testament place burdens on people's lives. So, there's the passage. A little bit of Bible used by the Pharisees promotes great immorality. A little bit of Bible, politicians, pop stars today promotes great immorality. The fullness of God's word, on the other hand, makes divorce extremely rare and not to be pursued and, 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 and wicked and actually bringing other people into wickedness if it's pursued, except if there's been this marriage-destroying act of sexual morality, which is a broad term, not a narrow one. That's what the passage says. Now let me break down five or six or seven, I'm not sure how many I've got, different areas of application that I think are very important for God's people. First, real quick, if you are realizing that for the first time you may have been living by just a little bit of Bible, let me just say this, it's far better to live with the whole thing. First, the commands of scripture will expose you, they'll convict you, they'll, convi they'll condemn you. The selfishness that's exposed gets exposed in you, but you keep reading and you find that the same savior who exposes all this sin dies for all this sin. He comes not only to expose it, to pay the penalty for it, and if you believe in him, all of your sins are forgiven. And then he wants you to learn from him. He wants to take forgiven people and actually teach them how to live and love and walk following him. Second thing I wanna say is, I wanna say a word to the brother or sister who's been cheated on. To the one who has a spouse who is cheating on them with another man or another woman or with an incessant pornography addiction, or something more perverse. And believe me, I have thought about the weight about what I'm about to say more than once. Jesus does not require you to be in that marriage. You are free. You are free and you can be remarried. It's the view of most scholars that divorce was always viewed as opening up the door for remarriage. Divorce, we have seen, is not permitted for any reason, but it is permitted for sexual morality. And if you are someone who has had sexual morality committed against them, whether that's adultery, incest, bestiality, 
just a constant commitment to being with other women online rather than the bride of your youth? You have a spouse who is giving you a lawful cause for divorce. And if that's you, I wanna stress two things to you. The first is you don't have to divorce. You're not commanded to divorce. And through pastoral counsel and the ministry of the body, many marriages have been saved and, and they've really grown to thrive after infidelity. If you choose to stay in a marriage where that, there has been infidelity, you will find encouragement in Christ's pursuit of a sinful bride, God's pursuit of sinful Israel, Hosea's pursuit of his wife, the prostitute Gomer. You will find the resources to forgive and rebuild in the forgiveness and reconciliation of Jesus. But here's, I wanna make sure we hear this because I don't think in our circles what I'm about to say gets heard enough. We should never make someone feel guilty if they choose to divorce for lawful reasons. Because this is the way this gets presented. Often we say to people who have been victims of infidelity, you can get divorced. I mean, maybe if you can't forgive. Or you're allowed to, but God hates divorce. Beloved, when Jesus gives a liberty to one of his children, it is sin to guilt them out of that liberty. If you choose divorce, you must forgive the one who sinned against you, but you do not have to remain married to them. You must receive them as a brother and sister in Christ. You do not have to continue on with them as a husband or a wife. And if you choose divorce after infidelity, you are not second class. You are walking in faith in the liberty Jesus has given. And in all these things, we need much wisdom, believers to sharpen us, pastors to guide us, and the Holy Spirit to help us. Praise God, we have those things in the church and the broader Christian community. To the brother and sister who's been unfaithful, can your marriage be saved? I do not know. But I know this, you can be restored and forgiven and used by God. Sometimes I have men and women come to me as they join Emmanuel and they explain they've been divorced and they wonder if they will be second class citizens in the church, not at all. Sin has consequences, yes, but God still uses sinners. Adultery is not the unforgivable sin. You may have ruined your marriage, that's a tragic heartbreak, but that does not mean there is no future for you with God. He used David after he committed adultery. He can use you. This passage exposes a particular sin. It does not teach us everything about all Christ will do with sinners when he is their savior. If you have a spouse who's considering divorcing you because of your sexual morality, let me say this to you. The way through that is not anger and bitterness and manipulation and telling them after you've sinned against them how holy they ought to be. The way through that is humility and brokenness and true repentance. Don't get mad that they're considering divorce. They're only considering the words of Jesus. Don't get mad that I preach this sermon. I'm only opening up the words of Jesus. Get to the root of your sin. Get help. Get friends, pastors, books, videos. Slay the sin that may have killed your marriage. And who knows what God will do. 
And if you have a spouse that's forgiven you, don't begrudge the fact that sometimes they will weep over the pain you've caused them. Seek God's Holy Spirit to handle that in humility and ask him to walk you to help you walk worthy in his grace and in theirs. To the man or the woman who got divorced for all the wrong reasons. Maybe you divorced and it wasn't because of sexual morality, it's because you fell out of love, it's because you found someone else, it's because of some lousy, unbiblical excuse. Maybe you need to make things right. Maybe through prayer, through counsel, there's a path to restoring the relationship you left illegitimately. Maybe not. Maybe they're already with someone else. Maybe you're already remarried. But if not, there may be a path open for you to see God do something wonderful. As I've said before, these things are complicated. We need the wisdom of Solomon. We need to seek counsel as you move forward. But God can do miracles. And he can restore what was broken. To the man or woman who's been divorced wrongfully and gotten remarried. Are you in a permanent state of adultery? Right, there are people who fit this into this verse. My spouse left me, it wasn't for sexual immorality. Now I'm remarried, Bible's telling me that's adultery. Where does that put me? Is our marriage an adultery? Am I living in adultery? I wanna give you a fairly technical answer and the reason is that I want you to be confident that you're not living in sin. Are you an adulteress or an adulterer if you've been remarried after a wrongful divorce? Craig Blomberg answers, the phrase causes her to become an adulteress is misleading. The Greek does not use the noun adulteress, but the verb makes her commit adultery. And actually the verb actually indicates kind of a one-time thing. There is no indication here that a second marriage, even following an illegitimate divorce, is seen as permanently adulterous. Divorced Christians who have remarried should not commit the sin of a second divorce and try to resume the relations with the previous spouse. That would actually be the very thing Deuteronomy 24, one through four, was speaking so strongly against. If you have been remarried for those un, in those unlawful ways, that was not a good start. There's no end to what God may do though. And leaving that second marriage is not the way forward in repentance, rather being the most faithful you can be in that situation. And if you are like, but I want something great to happen in my life and things don't happen that are great that start bad, what a lie. This is a club of it started bad, okay? This is the it started bad club, okay? We were, we were born dead in our trespasses and sins and we've been made alive together in Christ. It's kind of all up from here. Now to the average Christian couple, if there ever is such a thing, try to squeeze yourself in there. You've had your highs, you've had lows. There are graces and there are scars. There are breakthroughs and there are not this again. There were the good old days and now there's the I'm old days. 
Would you join me in noticing the great kindness of Jesus in utterly taking divorce off the table in your life? What has he done by stating so strongly how he wants you and I to remain with our spouses for a lifetime? He has fenced in a garden, and when you fence in a garden, you make a restricted place where something can actually grow. He has built a house with a high fence so you can't jump out easily on difficult days. Strong fences and strong walls are the kind of boundaries you need to actually see something worthwhile growing. And he's created that for his people. That's his instruction to his people. Think about it. We're all sinners. Our hearts are like the scribes and Pharisees. We would leave for trivial things. We would leave for serious things. We would leave after being sinned against a little or a lot. But Jesus says, stay. And he does it so that we can grow in love. He does this to provide for our happiness. You know, statistically, what the number one contributing factor is for happiness in marriage, I love this. You ready for it? You wanna be happy in your marriage? You wanna know the number one thing to make you happy in your marriage? Stay married. I remember years ago reading Tim Keller's statistic, he says two thirds of miserable marriages, if the people stay together, will say five years later they're happier. The number one thing to get through a dark season is to stay put. Eventually the sun comes up. If you'll stick with it, you'll find things are much better on the other side. If you break up now, Keller says, you'll never know. And by the way, we hear these rampant divorce statistics, but it's actually second and third and fourth marriages that have the highest divorce statistics. It's the people who wouldn't stick around to make it work the first time. In marriage, God provides for our companionship I mean, just think about it. Think about walking through life going, if my belly swells, or if I'm barren, or if I burn the food, he has a lawful right to divorce me, or she has a lawful divorce right to divorce me. No, no, no. Jesus comes and says, you can get fat, you can get skinny, you can be sick, you can be healthy, you can be grumpy, you've got to stay together. And guess what happens? You actually start to experience comfort and stability, and peace. Again, Keller, the legal bond of marriage creates a space of security where we can open up and reveal our true selves. We can be vulnerable, no longer having to keep up our facades. We don't have to keep selling ourselves. The idea of dating again, oh my word, it's awful. We can lay the last layer of our defenses down. When you're afraid you might be divorced for being barren, having wide feet, or an irritable streak, you never know the security, but that is Jesus' gift to his people. Oh, that this insecure world would know where love is today that can overcome their insecurities. People don't even know who they are gonna be tomorrow, let alone knowing they would be loved tomorrow. Last thing, marriage is a great place of sanctification. Now, this is usually said as a downer. It's sort of the proverbial wisdom to the newly, you know, there's some guy really excited to be married, and, well, it's sanctifying. <laughs> Thanks. 
Let's try that again on another key. (laughs) Think about all we need to know to live out the gospel. Reconciliation, repentance, meekness, poverty of spirit, a right view of authority and submission. These things are hard. They're miraculous. They generally take a long time to cultivate. I don't know a lot of people who get these on the honeymoon. Well, honestly, most people don't need these on the honeymoon. It's after the honeymoon. Now, these things can be cultivated outside of marriage, for sure. Single people grow in reconciliation, holiness, all those things, absolutely. But there's a sweetness knowing as a Christian that we're bound to someone who has promised never to forsake us as we try to act like Jesus and fall on our face along the way. I'm so thankful that through all my sins and struggles, Christy Fullerton has obeyed the word of Jesus to walk with me until death do us part. I hope when you debrief with your spouse after this sermon, you won't primarily be telling them how they, uh, it was good they heard a marriage sermon, there's a lot they could improve on. But maybe you just put their, your hand over in their hand or on their knee and just say, I'm just glad you're still here. And I want you to know I'm still here. We're gonna obey Jesus and we're gonna work through this thing and grow in this thing till the very end. That's just one of the advantages of living in the fullness of God's word. Instead of wallowing in sin guided by just a little bit of Bible. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your grace. You've drawn lines for us in pleasant places. You've hemmed us in behind and before. You don't make us stay through every wickedness. You open up a door for those who've endured sexual immorality. But Lord God, for the most part, you bind your people to one another in marriage and you cause all kinds of good things to grow over the years. We pray that we would see marriages flourish. We'd see that bless singles and everyone, widows, orphans. We pray that we'd see your good law of love cause marriages to flourish at Emmanuel. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.